The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Here in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, uh, we see Christ in his threefold offices, prophet, priest, and king. It's going to be the, the basic outline for uh, this passage this morning. And we're going to look at this passage in three sermons uh, today and the following two Lord's Days. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, let's give our attention now as God himself speaks to us in his word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the irradiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. He who has ears to hear, may he hear what God the Spirit has to say this morning. Well, we hear a lot of familiar terms in our Christian circles, kind of Christianese terms in our day. We hear things like surrender, just trust the Lord, let go and let God, be fully devoted. There's even some helpful acronyms, of frog, fully rely on God. And You may be familiar with these, or you may have heard some others, and these are usually uh, given by well-meaning Christians or pastors and leaders who are trying to help struggling Christians. But I want you to take these phrases for a moment and apply it to a different context. Let's say you and a friend are walking on a trail, and along this trail, you come to a narrow bridge that goes over a big chasm. And your friend says, okay, come on, let's go, let's keep going, let's keep walking here. But you're not so sure. You see this big chasm, and you see this narrow bridge, and you're not so sure that you can trust that bridge. And you tell your friend that. I don't know that I can trust this bridge. I'm scared. I don't know that I can cross it. And your friend responds by saying, Surrender. Trust. Let go and let bridge. Throb. Fully rely on bridge. Would you find those responses helpful? Would you find them even reasonable? Well, no, of course not. It sounds kind of silly. And yet this is some of the things I think we do, we can tend to do uh, as Christians when it comes to God. 
What do you think would be helpful if you were afraid to cross that bridge? Or let's say it was reversed. You had a friend that was afraid to cross that bridge. What would you tell your friend? You start talking about the bridge, right? This bridge is made of the finest steel and iron. This bridge hasn't budged an inch in thousands of years. This bridge has the best engineering behind it. Thousands have crossed this bridge, and it hasn't failed any once. You'd start talking about the reliability and faithfulness and trustworthy of the bridge. It would not be helpful to just be repeatedly told to trust the bridge with cliches. Rather, you want to know why it's trustworthy. It's qualities or attributes that make it faithful. And this is what the book of Hebrews is doing here. The book of Hebrews is talking about why we can trust the bridge. Why we can trust Christ as our mediator. When you consider Christ as mediator, when you hear that word mediator, one of the most helpful images is that of a bridge. Christ is the one who bridges the gap between God and man. The chasm created because of our sin. And when you think of Christ as mediator, which is what the book of Hebrews is talking about, it starts off right out of the gate here in verses 1-4. through four. You need to think of three offices. Prophet, priest, and king. And this is what we see in verses 1-4. through four. Christ is prophet. The author of Hebrews says about his office as prophet. In these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Who's the exact image, uh, exact imprint of his nature. Regarding Christ as priest, he says, Christ has made purification for our sins. Regarding Christ as king, he says that he is seated at God's right hand, upholding the whole universe by the word of his power. These three offices, prophet, priest, and king, are offices that pertain to Christ as mediator between us and God. Our confession of faith, which by the way, a confession of faith is simply a doctrinal statement. You ever get on a church website and click on what we believe? Do you ever find them saying, just the Bible? No, of course not. They use words other than direct quotes of the Bible to affirm what they believe the Bible to be teaching. Everyone does this. Everybody has a doctrinal statement. Uh, some just have it in their head. And then you find out what it is uh, when you cross the line. We have a doctrinal statement that's simply a historic confession of faith. It's a doctrinal statement that's longer that many have held to uh, for the last 300 years. And I think it... it puts it well in chapter 8, paragraph 10, which says this number and order of offices is necessary, pertaining to his office as mediator, his, his work as mediator, for in respect of our ignorance we stand in need of his prophetical office. And, re and in respect of our ignorance we stand in need 
or I'm sorry, respective of our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office, in respect of our alienation from God, and in perfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable unto God in respect of our averseness and utter inability to return to God. And for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, hold, deliver, serve us to his heavenly kingdom. And this, brothers and sisters, helps us in understanding why we should trust this bridge between God and man. So we're going to look at Christ as prophet today. The next Lord's Day, we're going to look at him as priest. And then after that, we're going to look at him as our king. His office is prophet today. This is the office that bridges the gap between us and God by revealing God to us, his will, his way, his character, by his word. So two aspects of Christ's superiority as prophet is our outline. First, fullness of revelation is in him. Second, full, he is the fullness of God. First, fullness of revelation. We begin in verses 1 and the first half of verse 2. It says, long ago. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. In both instances, God is the one speaking. God spoke to the prophets. In these last days, He, being God, has spoken to us by His Son. And you also notice that there's two errors here. Long ago... And in these last days, now long ago can simply mean times past. It doesn't need to be a long time. But this is referring to the time that God spoke to the fathers, that is the ancient Israelites, by the prophets. This is the Old Testament time. This is contrasted by in these last days, which is marked by God having spoken by his son. And this is a note. Scripture refers to what we're going through right now as the last days. And oftentimes when we think of last days, we tend to think of you know, the, the end times, the things, the events leading up to uh, Christ's return. And there's a lot of discussion about that. But just notice what Scripture says here. It says the last days is the time that God has spoken by His Son. This marks the beginning of the last days. And other places the scripture refers to the last days. Acts 2, Peter quotes uh, Joel 2 with regards to the Spirit being poured out on the day of Pentecost. It's saying this is a mark of the last days. In the last days, God's going to pour out His Spirit. And the Apostle Paul describes our time in 1 Corinthians 10-11 as the end of the ages. On whom the end of the ages has come. So, Scripture refers to what we are in now as the last days. Hence, Hebrews 1-2, in these last days. Also, according to Hebrews 1-2, these last days are marked by God having spoken to us in His Son. And this is, uh, this is the difference from the way in which God previously spoke to how God has spoken to us in these days. 
previous times it says many times in many ways. And this is actually better translated as many parts or many pieces. Many parts and many pieces or ways, it refers to the single idea of not fully or complete. In classical Greek, when this phrase that we see in Hebrews 1-2, translated as many times and many ways, or many parts and many pieces, when they would use that phrase in classical Greek, they're using it to describe something that was the opposite of full and complete. So pieces and parts that God has spoken in means it wasn't the full and complete picture. Now, this is like giving many different puzzle pieces without the whole picture. Here's a puzzle piece here. Here's a puzzle piece there. And what the author's referring to is all the types and shadows and prophecies and predictions in which God has spoken which were not explicitly clear. They had the sacrifices. And the people would sin. And God said, bring an animal sacrifice before me and slaughter it and shed blood and apply the blood in the, the tabernacle even though it didn't say, and this is pointing to Christ, yet they had a picture of Christ. How do I get back into the presence of God? Oh, it's through a sacrifice that would be offered up on my behalf. The high priest offering up the sacrifice, a picture of Christ, another piece of the puzzle. Oh, it would have to be a high priest, not my, not my offering, but a high priest offering up the sacrifice on my behalf. Then you would have a king a king who would deliver the people from their enemies would point to Christ. King David pointed to Christ. And then you would have another picture. It wouldn't be David, but a son who would come after David, who would build God a house. And we see that Solomon would point to Christ. That there would be a greater son who would come afterwards, who would build God a house. The temple. And then you read these you read the Psalms and and there's this king, it's it's attributed to David, but this king's suffering. And the king's being unjustly treated. And this king is saying things like, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They have pierced my hands and my feet. They cast lot for my clothing. And a piece of the puzzle, all these different pieces. And yet, it didn't come together because, as 1 Peter 1 says, these prophets who are writing about this, they're trying to figure out what all this means. That the times and person of the Christ who would suffer, that the Spirit of Christ in them was predicting, they didn't have the full picture. In times past, many pieces and many parts God has spoken. But in these last days, God is not only given the whole picture. Here's the whole puzzle put together. But He has given the very one who was pictured all along. His Son. This is like going for many scattered puzzle pieces of a picture. Say of a famous person or a sports figure you would like to meet. It's like, okay, here's a puzzle piece here. Here's a puzzle piece here. To, to not only putting the puzzle piece together to see who that person is, but meeting the person in real life. That's the way it is when in these last days God has spoken 
in His Son. It's not just types and shadows and pictures, but His Son has come in human flesh and has revealed the Father. He's not the mere instrument of revelation from God like the prophets of old, but rather He Himself is the very revelation of God. And this brings us to the second aspect of Christ's superiority as prophet, and that is He's the fullness of God. And this is where Hebrews 1.3 goes on to say, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So how has God revealed Himself? He has revealed Himself in His Son. And who is this Son? The exact imprint of His nature and the radiance of His glory. Okay, hang on. Hang on to this ride, alright? We're going to go through some deep waters. Okay? We're going we're to dive deeply. We're not going to do anything that uh, anything other than basic Christianity, but we're going to we're going to dive deeply in this. Okay, so if you're falling asleep, don't fall asleep. It's that easy, huh? Just don't fall asleep. And here we also have to acknowledge up front that our minds are not going to comprehend this. Uh, we are not going to understand everything about God with our finite minds. That is one, I think, of the key things we need to understand. And we need to be okay with that. Because faith accepts the things that we can't understand. Faith accepts the things that our minds cannot grasp. As Hebrews, as uh, Proverbs 3.5 reminds us, we are to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our, un on our own understanding. So the Hebrew author uses two analogies to describe the person of the Son. These analogies come from creation to describe the Son as He is apart from creation. In other words, this is who the Son would be even if creation never existed. The first analogy is that of light. He is the radiance of the glory of God. This is like the sun shining forth its rays of light. And notice I said light. Okay, we're, we're talking in analogies. That is, we're not saying this is exactly the way it is. We're saying it's like this. But it's not exactly this. The, the, the Son of God is the brightness of the Father's glory in whom His glory is shown forth. The, the Son is the one who reveals the Father in His magnificent glory. And this is why the Apostle John says in both John 1 and Revelation 19.13 that He is the Word of God. The Son of God is the Word of God. We have to understand what is meant by Word. When you hear the word, Word, we, what do you tend to think of? I know for me, I tend to think of symbols, right? A, a combination of symbols that you come that come together, or some vibrations that, that we, in the ears. So I'm using words right now. Uh, my my tongue is making sounds that vibrate in the ear that you hear. But words pertain to something more meaningful than just the symbols and sounds. It's not just symbols and sounds, but there's realities. There's there's inner thoughts. Uh, how do you know what a man's thinking other than 
by the use of words. Word is something that reveals realities. And that is what we have here with the Son. The the, the Son is called the Word of God, not because He's a symbol or a sound or a combination of symbols on a page uh, or vibrated in the air. Rather, He is the revelation of the Father. He is the true God revealed in the person of His Son. And this really is something that's indescribable. Maybe to to help us understand it the best we can. We ask this question. I'll put this question to you. If you were to describe yourself in one word, how would you do it? Some of you are probably thinking of various words. Some of you are... Maybe you have a word in mind, but you know that you need more words than just that one word to describe you, because that one word doesn't, well, it might mostly describe you, it might might most accurately describe you, yet it's not going to fully describe you. So let's let's say one word you could describe yourself is, is loving. Well, yeah, but... There's other words you can use to describe yourself. Or maybe, I don't know, sassy. I don't know why I thought of that. I'm not looking at anybody. I'm not not just looking up here. don't think I'm describing anyone in particular. But let's say a word sassy describes you. Well, there's more to you than just sassiness, right? But then also think about this. Um, can love and sassiness, can that be used to describe other people? Yeah, of course. If you didn't exist, would love and sassiness exist? Yes, of course. However, God is described perfectly, completely, wholly, and uniquely with word. And that word is His Son. His Son is the exact imprint. The one who radiates His glory perfectly and who fully in every way expresses the Father. That one word fully describes God. Fully reveals God. And uniquely reveals God. Whereas we could call ourselves sassy or loving. And that's not unique to us. It could describe other people. The Son fully, uniquely describes or reveals the Father. And this is because the Son is... Okay, now we're going to get deep, okay? We're going deeper into the, 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 the pool. We're, we were just... We were just maybe in the... You take a pool. We're about uh, in the area that's about 6 to 8 feet deep. Now we're going to go about 12 to 15 feet deep, okay? This is because the Son is eternally generated or eternally begotten of the Father, which is what Hebrews 1.3 is describing. Now, as I'm describing this, maybe we should have had an exception to uh, having coffee in the sanctuary today. 
You know, I, the, the deacons would never go for that. Uh, but it's one of those things where your mind's going to be stretched. And especially if you didn't get good sleep last night, there's you're, you're, going to be a temptation to get sleepy-eyed. But have you ever heard this before? That the Son is eternally generated or eternally begotten of the Father. Now I want you to bear with me as I describe this because maybe you've never heard this before, but this is basic Christianity. This is Christianity 101, but that doesn't make it simple. It's still profound because we're talking about uh, God here. In John's Gospel, the Son is referred to as begotten of the Father. Uh, for some reason, the ESV, the NIV, and later versions of the NAS chose to remove uh, this word from their translation. However, the older version of the NASB, and if you're using the King James Version, a new King James Version, they all retain the Greek word, begotten. Uh, everyone's familiar with John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He, what? He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And John 1.18 actually calls the Son the begotten God. The begotten God. Now there's some uh, manuscripts that say begotten Son. But the, the, the original, uh, the, the, the more uh, better manuscripts retain God. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And this is also affirmed in 1 John 4.19 that the Son is begotten. So, Scripture declares the Son is begotten. Now, what does it mean to be begotten? You, 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 young, uh, you, you youngins in here, you know what begotten means? It means to give birth to. That's what it means. It's an older English word. Meaning to give birth to. Now we know what it means for humans. It means to give birth to a son, to, to, to a child. A father begets a child. The child comes from the father. And as you hear this, you may be wondering, how could Scripture say this is the case for the son? Well, when Scripture says that the son is begotten of the father, it's not saying it's the same as it is with creatures. Rather, we remove all that is creaturely from the Father begetting His Son. And we do this with the word eternal. Eternally begotten of the Father. And what this means is that this divine life is eternally given by the Father and eternally received by the Son in a union that has no beginning and no end. No starting point, no end point, no time in between. Eternal means that it had no beginning, no starting point, as if to say there's a time that the Son did not have this life, one moment, and then the next moment it's given to Him and He has it. That the Father began starting point to give this life. It's eternal, which means there's no beginning and there's no end. The Son eternally shares in the existence, life, and nature of God the Father. And we see Jesus testify to this and affirm this in John 5.26. I'll read that verse for you. John 5.26, Jesus says, 
For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. What does it mean to have life in oneself? Do you have life in yourself as a creature? No. Your life is given to you. And your life can be taken from you. Can you hold on to your life? No, you're a dependent creature. We are dependent creatures. But the Father, that the Father has life in Himself means that His life is not derived from or dependent on another. No one gave God His life. No one gave God His existence. He asks the question, where did God come from? The answer is, nowhere. He is of Himself. No one made Him the way He is. No one gave His existence. No one willed Him to exist. He has always existed, just as He is. He is life in Himself. Our life and existence and everything in creation is dependent on God. Nothing would exist. Nothing would have life if it were not for God and His will. We are dependent on God to will and to exist, to make us exist, and then give us the breath of life. However, God has always existed from all eternity. No beginning, no end. No one willed God to exist. No one made God to exist. No one gave God His life. No one sustains God's life. God has life in Himself. He said to Moses, I am who I am. He just simply is. And Jesus says that just as the Father has life in Himself, He has also granted the Son to have this same life. Life in Himself. This means that the Son has life in Himself, just like God the Father does. The Son has life in Himself, and therefore is self-existent. Not dependent on anything outside of Himself. Outside of God to exist or have life. This can only be said of God and no mere creature. However, the Son's distinction from the Father is that the Son has this life in Himself from the Father. The Father has granted this to the Son. The Son is claiming that it is the Father who has granted Him to have this life in Himself. This divine life has been given to Him by the Father. And this is referring to that eternal generation, that eternal begottenness. However, it is eternal. There is not a point in which the Son did not have this and then began to have this. It has always been the case. This, He has always shared in this divine life in an unbreakable and eternal union with the Father. This is why the Father is called the Father and the Son is called the Son. You ever wonder why that why that's the case? Why is the Father called the Father? And why is the Son called the Son? Ever wonder that? It's because of this. It's because the Father does not have a Father. He is not begotten. He has no source. However, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Now, does this sound strange to you? Have you ever heard this before? If you haven't, it's because we've lost this doctrine in our day. It's not talked about much. But I just want to run through briefly bullet point 
church history for you so, so you know this is not something odd or strange. This is basic Christianity. This has been the common confession of the one universal church. This was confessed in the words of the Nicene Creed, and this dates back to 325 A.D. And you know what's wonderful about the creeds? This is before the time you had all these different divisions in the church, all these different denominations. Rather, this is a time when the whole church was together, was one. You had a West church and an East church, and they all came together. All of them came together. Uh, their, their leaders and representatives as one church to confess these things. And uh, what's confessed in the Nicene Creed is that the Son is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. You know where that, uh, that phrase, light of light, comes from? Hebrews 1.3, the radiance of His glory. Light of light. This is also in our Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 3, which reads, The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Let's just run through some important church history figures. Gregory of Nyssa, very important early church father from the 4th century, said, The Son exists by generation indeed, but nevertheless he never begins to exist. Athanasius. You may have heard of him. Very important early church figure who stood firm for the sake of the Trinity. In fact, the, the creed on the Trinity it was named after him, even though he never wrote it. This is what Athanasius had to say. He said that the Son is the proper offspring of the Father's essence. Augustine, 5th century, arguably one of the most important theologians in church, church history, said, the Father bestows being on the Son without any beginning in time. All the Reformers affirm this. Uh, one Reformer, Benedict Pictic, uh, referring uh, to eternal generation, said, The Father from all eternity communicated His name, His perfections, and His glory to His Son. Now John Gill, very important Reformed Baptist to use that term and anachronistically, that is, to, to take a term that didn't exist back then and uh, to, to, to use it to relate to our day. He's from the 18th century. He said this, All the sound and orthodox writers have unanimously declared for the eternal generation and sonship of Christ in all ages. In fact, John Gill's church once excommunicated a member who rejected this doctrine. And this is because this is basic Christianity. This is the language that Scripture uses. The Son is the begotten God. And Scripture calls the Father, Father, and the Son, Son. I think it goes without saying that what makes a father a father? He gets a son. What makes a son a son? Come from a father. However, Scripture also testifies that the Son is eternal God. And so any humanist in begetting must be removed from our thinking in eternal generation. You know what? We already do this, don't we? Think about it for a moment. When you say God the Father, do you automatically think that God the Father is older than God the Son? It's necessarily the case with human fathers and sons, right? A father by necessity is older than his son. Is that the case with God? Do you struggle with that when you say God the Father and God the Son? Oh, well, wait a minute. Maybe the Father's older? 
No, of course not. We just automatically know that these, these terms that we use do truly describe them, but it's not the same as it is with creatures. The Father is a Father because He eternally begets His Son. And the same is, is true when we talk about Him being begotten of the Father. Also, the Son is not merely like His Father, but is the exact representation of His Father, which is the second analogy that Hebrews 1.3 uses, the exact imprint of His nature. Think of a logo. Uh, you see that on football helmets. You, you, you see that uh, you know, with schools. Uh, they'll have the same logo that gets printed. Well, if God was to have a logo, so to speak, if He was to have an imprint that exactly matched Him, it's His Son. So again, it's a human analogy used to describe the Son. He's not just God's greatest mouthpiece. He is very God of very God. Okay, thanks for, thanks for sticking with me. This is important, basic Christianity. Okay? This is stuff that needs to be recovered. It's difficult, it's profound, but it is basic Christianity. When we think about the Son, we need to think about Him as begotten. The next question I want to end with is, why does this matter? Okay, you just gave me a bunch of doctrine. Um, oh, it's all heady. Why does it even matter? Well, have you ever thought of the Father, God the Father, as a distant, austere, hard man who is in heaven kind of looking down at you with disappointment and anger? But thanks be to Jesus, you know, he, he kind of comes in and he kind of smooths things over. You know, the father's angry and hard, but Jesus is nicer. And he comes in and he takes the beating for you so that the father is no longer angry at you. You ever thought that way? Well, in reality, when you see Jesus, you are seeing God himself. The exact imprint of his nature. In Jesus, you're not seeing a nicer, gentler version of God. Rather, you are seeing the same God of the Old Testament. It was the Son of God in the Old Testament talking with Moses on the mountain. Whose anger is kindled against Israel. When we see Jesus, we are seeing in human form the God of the Old Testament. And we're seeing the, the, this true statement that, that, that we even spoke this morning in our call to worship. That God is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You want to see the full revelation of that? We see that in Christ. When you see Jesus in human form, you are seeing the God of the Old Testament who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, who pardons sin, transgression, and iniquity, who will by no means clear the guilty. When you see the baby born in a, of a virgin in a manger, you're seeing God and His love and compassion for sinners. When you see Jesus take pity on the unclean leper who asks Him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus moved with pity stretches out his hand and says, I am willing to be clean. You are seeing the revelation of God the Father 
and His love and compassion towards sinners. You're not seeing a different God. You're seeing God. He is moved with pity towards sinners who desire to be kindness. Ever feel dirty and filthy after falling into sin? Wonder if God will forgive you? Look to Jesus who said, I am willing to be cleansed. When you see Him have compassion on the large crowd because they are like sheep without a shepherd, you are seeing the Father's compassionate heart. When you see the patient endurance He has towards hostile enemies and the ignorance of His people, you are seeing the revelation of God in human flesh. You are seeing the exact representation of the Father revealed to finite creatures in finite flesh. When you see His sharp rebuke of the Pharisees and declaration of His eternal judgment, you're seeing God's hatred for sin. He hates sin. But when you see Him on the cross, bleeding, dying, treated shamefully, and suffering, refusing to come down despite the taunts of His enemy, you are seeing very God, a very God, and God's love for sinners. You are seeing the infinite love of the Father displayed in His Son, who is the exact imprint of His nature and radiance of His glory. Does God love sinners? Does God save the ungodly? You see Jesus bleeding and dying on the cross. You have your answer. God in Christ willing to take our place. And here we see that He will by no means clear the guilty or compromise His righteousness and justice and that He would see sin fully punished if we would be forgiven. We see the true God in Christ in all His holiness, justice, righteousness, but also His love, mercy, and compassion come together in this wisdom of God in the cross to redeem us from our sins. When Jesus said He is gentle and lowly of heart, it's because that is who God is, beloved. Because Christ is the radiance of His glory, and the exact imprint of His nature, you are seeing God when you see Christ. This is why Jesus is superior as our prophet. Because God not only spoke through Him, but has spoken in Him. And He has revealed and made Himself known in His Son. Radiance of His glory. Perfect in every way. And this is why we can fully trust our Savior, God incarnate, the full and true revelation of God, His only begotten Son. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that as we see Christ in the pages of Scripture, that we would realize we are seeing exactly who You are. Albeit in human form, not looking, appearing into Your essence, not knowing You the way You know Yourself, but a true revelation of You to finite creatures and finite forms. Your love and compassion and mercy all, re- all revealed 
in your Son. Now, Father, we ask that uh, as we consider these things, we would uh, draw near to you. That you are not uh, an angry God uh, towards us, your people, who have believed. But that you are most loving, most merciful, pitying sinners, gentle and lowly of heart. And that is why we can come to you with full confidence. You will receive us to yourself. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.